Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group, a national consulting firm based in Chicago, celebrating more than 20 years of transformation through assessment, education, and action. I am so excited for this episode of Gathering Ground because today, for the first time ever, I am being joined by a Gathering Ground co-host. She is none other than Monique Jones. Monique is a nonprofit leader with over 20 years of experience in the social impact sector and is currently the president and CEO of Forefront, an Illinois state association whose mission is to build a vibrant social impact sector for all the people of Illinois. Welcome, Monique. This, I'm so happy this is finally happening. It is. It took us a minute to get here. Because we're busy you. people. We're busy people. Um, and I don't like using that word, but it is so true. However, um, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for our guests. Um, this episode, we're going to be talking to some of our fierce leaders and about latest trends in the social impact sector. I'll talk a little bit about what the social impact sector is. And more so, we'll be talking about the vision and things that are happening in the state of Illinois that apply to all of us. So looking forward to diving into this conversation. Wow. And, and she away she goes. It's like <laughs> she was born to do this. Um, so Monique, let's start with giving people a really, um, you know, accessible understanding of what it means to use the term social impact sector. So if you think about everything that you engage in to make your community better, you may volunteer in the community, you may go to a faith-based institution. You may seek out educational assistance. It is those organizations, whether they are nonprofit, for-profit, um, business, that work together in a broader space to improve lives throughout Illinois. So for Forefront, that includes some of our members, such as foundations or folks with grant-making vehicles, nonprofit organizations, businesses with a corporate social responsibility arm, um, and the host of nonprofit organizations throughout this state that help all of us have better lives and live healthy and long lives to be able to tell our legacies about that. Wonderful. So we're going to hear about all of that over the next hour. So, you know, certainly at the beginning of the year, I was reading Chronicle and Philanthropy. Of course of you course, were. And um, <laughs> noticing, uh, as, as well as some other columns uh, that we'll mention here uh, that Vu has written, um, but individual and philanthropic investments seem to have really changed. Yeah. And they have changed um, post the major part of COVID. I say the major part because we, we're still in COVID, although people, you know, sometimes don't want to acknowledge that. What what do we think is happening with regard to uh, the philanthropic investments that have really changed? And, and I guess I was hoping, like many people were, that the way that foundations came together and understood that, hey, we can do right. rapid response. We, in fact, don't need to have a written report. Right. We can just talk to our grantees on the phone and find out what they're doing. It feels like some of that is being pulled back. So we're going to explore that as well. We are. So the, all of the things that we did during covid um, we're not necessarily pulling back on doing them. We're realizing that it's not a zero-sum game. There is more than one way to get at resolving an issue. So we'll talk about those trends. We'll hear from our friends that are working in those areas, but we'll do it in a space that gives us the ample opportunity to really evaluate what's working for the sector um, and actually what we want to see more of. Wonderful. So let's talk about our very special guest. I want to welcome our guest. Um, first of all, this is someone who's been on the podcast three times. Did you realize that three times, Vu? Um, Boulay, the founder and publisher of Nonprofit AF, and Julie Buck, the president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Grundy County in Illinois. Thank you so much for joining us again, Vu. And Julie, we are so pleased to have you join Gathering Ground 
for the first time. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mary Monique. Do I get like a T-shirt for being, you know? Here? Okay, we'll get you a T-shirt. We'll, we'll get a T-shirt. For nonprofit organization, I can send you a notebook. How about that? <laughs> okay. Pen. We have pins here. Okay. All right. That's All right. how things start, right? Nope. What? <laughs> what can you send me? So let me start with this question. We always want to set the context uh, for our guest. Um, tell us, Julie, how you got to your current role. Just a little snapshot of. You know, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? What what has been um, uh, interesting and exciting to you about being in the philanthropic community? Well, I'm back in my hometown of Morris, Illinois. I'm an hour southwest of Chicago. And I'm one of those kids who ran away to university, couldn't wait to get out of small town, lived and worked in St. Louis and Chicago, and 20 years of the rat race and hopping on the train and getting downtown and all that other good stuff then got married and had children and uh, actually through a high school classmate. But long story short, just got a note from the man who founded our community foundation and said, hey, I heard through the grapevine, I should get your resume. And I think the point I wanted to make is, you know, I had a real hard time in my 20s because I wasn't a teacher. I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't an architect. Come to find out I am an administrator. So you can give me anything and I can administer it. So that's kind of how I got to be where I am, although I have been in disability rights my entire career. Julie, what did you what did you study in college? Interior design because I wanted to do barrier free design. But this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we didn't have an architectural firm in Illinois that wanted to hire me. So at least not on a full time basis, because disability access wasn't a thing in the mid 80s so and how long have you been with the foundation 20 years <laughs> okay thank you so much i am going to turn to boo boo give us a little snapshot of how you got to this role today yeah i was born in vietnam uh spent some time thought i was going to be an artist and then a doctor realized i didn't want to be a doctor um and it got into social work. Actually, I went to school in St. Louis, uh, Julie. Yeah. And then I came back to Seattle and have been kind of causing trouble, running a couple of nonprofits. Then I uh, spun off onto onto my own uh, right before the pandemic happened. I was like, ah, I'm just going to be a, a writer, a speaker now, right before the pandemic. And that was that was. Interesting. What made you do that? Because I think I think I, w- I was just talking, calling out all the inequities in our sector a bit. And I think it was it was a little hard to do that when I was kind of fearful that it might affect my organization. Right. When I was calling out funders and so on. And some of them might actually be funding my org. So I, I didn't really want to put that weight on them. Plus, I have right. small children and I. I was just like, you know what? I, I want to spend more time with them. Wonderful. So before we move on into the subject matter, why don't you tell folks how you got to your current? Oh, I feel like it's been a long journey, but I'm only 21 years old, so I'm not really sure how this happened. Um, I am a social worker by training. So born in or born in Chicago, raised in Arkansas. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker. That was my first heartbeat to work with young children in foster care. And I have taken that from working directly with children to now volunteering in that role, but using that to influence philanthropy and nonprofit work. So I've been leading Forefront for almost two and a half years. 
and I've been in philanthropy for 15. And I should also acknowledge that Morton Group placed Monique at Forefront, (laughs) which was a lovely process and um, immediately rose to the top. She's just (laughs) fabulous. Um, So thank you all very much. That gives us some context. And now we're going to dive into just talking about the social impact sector. Right. So thinking about some of the biggest challenges, you all work in different areas. Um, You have different demographics that you work with. Vu, you call out a lot of um, inappropriate um, practices for our philanthropic friends, rightfully so. (laughs) Um, And Julie, you lead a lot of philanthropic practices for the sector or for a part of the sector. What would either of you say are some of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now in the social impact sector as you're doing your work? Go ahead, Boo. <laughs> I was hoping you could speak first so that I have time to think. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm happy. I made my own little notes and all this other good stuff. So, so please understand my perspective is purely from ultra rural. Yes. So I'm in a rural community, a rural county of 50,000 people. of our acreage is farmland. We only have 50,000 people. Um, Statistically, our county is 85% white, 11% Latino, and 2% black or African American. So so we're still white. Um, In the big picture of life, we're incredibly affluent. And... We are in, so Will and Grundy counties are next to one another. We're quite often in the same catchment area for state and federal grants. So compared to the east side of Joliet, which is very low income, high Latino population, my white affluent county doesn't um, win those contests for grants and all this other good stuff. However, I'm not here to whine about that because I think we're doing a really, really good job of taking care of our own. And um, I'm really using that transfer of wealth study to find and connect with our residents of high net worth and talk to them about supporting the nonprofits who are doing the work to support our residents in need and or the fine arts or historic preservation or whatever. So as far as challenges go, um, I, I think it's probably what it's always been in that I think donors just need to trust those of us on the front line, damn it. You know, <laughs> instead of quizzing us one way to, you know, seven ways to Sunday, I really don't think somebody who's never used a food pantry should be quizzing a food pantry about their policies and procedures and stuff like that. So, um, and then since the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of clients getting very aggressive and belligerent. Um, So it's a mental health thing. I don't know if the pandemic is causing it or the pandemic has freed them up to act the way they want to act. So out here in rural America, we are, um, experiencing more and more frontline workers who are getting burned out because they're sick and tired of dealing with the problem. I've heard that before. I agree with Julie about donors who don't have the lived experiences, you know, kind of staying away from trying to direct our work because it's not effective. It's very frustrating. 
I think that everything is on fire. That's the challenges that I'm seeing right now. You know, trans people are being attacked. Uh, we are dealing with irreversible climate change. We have uh, this rise in fascism that a lot of folks just are like, nah, whatever, you know, like the suppression of voting and the gun violence has been a, a real issue. And I am not so sure that our sector is equipped and resourced to deal with these challenges. A lot of funders are still very much in the same sort of philosophies and practices that they have been, which is like, oh, we're going to only give out 5% of our money because we're saving 95% for like the apocalypse or whatever. This is the apocalypse. Like this is when you're supposed to be putting out money. You know, you save for a rainy day. It is today. That is the rainy day right now. So I, I'm frustrated with the sort of white moderation that I've been seeing from a lot of funders. Like recently, you know, like Mary, you talked about that Chronicle um, article where it's just like a whole bunch of funders got together and be like, you know, you need, we need to protect funding, phil phil philanthropic pluralism, where who, it doesn't matter what you fund, it all is good because we all are well-meaning. That's bullshit. A lot of funders are not well-meaning and their work is advancing the very inequity that many of us are trying to address. Well, go ahead, Julie. I just wanted to throw in that one of the authors of that article is the CEO of the Council on Foundations, and our national conference is coming up in June in Denver, and I'm going, <laughs> and I want to be a little fly on the wall and see if this article is talked about. Right. It should be talked about. I think there will be a response if it has not already been put out there to that article. Um, we should note that it does not speak for all of the foundations. Um, as a matter of fact, as a philanthropic serving organization, it does not speak for Forefront, um, and I did not add my name to that. <laughs> so um, I think there's much more of a conversation to be had about how to go about being a good funder um, and how we serve our community. And just for a little context, what we're referencing is an article that is uh, in, so this is May, right? And it's right. in the most current um, Chronicle, right? Um, and so, yeah, sounds like there's going to be a response to that article. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with that, though, what role do you think, honestly, the onus, as you said, uh, Vu, funders are sitting back, they're saying, let's re only release 5% or whatever they're saying. Is there a role for individuals or grant makers, grant seekers to play in changing that trajectory? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think everyone needs to be figuring out what their role is, what what privileges that they have and start being out there. I think so many of us hide behind like this organization, like, oh, my organization doesn't believe in that. Well, I don't know. If you're the CEO of this foundation or this PSO or whatever, then you have the, the power as an individual to, to be out there. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just talk there. I'm having this coughing fit right now. I used to say a long time ago that um, funding organizations sometimes is supposed to be risky. Like, well, exactly right. <laughs> that a that a portfolio will have some risk, right? Mm -hmm. You'll have the people that you know are going to perform well. Mm -hmm. You have some risk taking. If if we're, you know, those of us like us are not going to take the risk. Who is right? You guys see anything that you, mm -hmm. Julie? Do you have anything that you've been taking risks on in Grundy County? I think we've always been taking risks with a small r risk. Um, our founder, who sadly just died in April, he was my one of my best friends and mentor, but he constantly was saying, if your friends don't tell you, your enemies surely won't. And we have always been happy to 
provide funding for new ideas. And sometimes we had to do them ourselves in-house because there wasn't a nonprofit poised and ready to take on more crap because they were already up to their eyeballs in it. But then, and sometimes you just get a local nonprofit who looks at me and goes, I don't get it. I'm like, okay. So there have been plenty of times where we have launched something and funded it for a few years. And then another nonprofit says, aha, now we see what you mean. And we give them money to take it over type of thing. Um, as far as impact investing, I finally had a colleague open my understanding a few months ago as to what it truly means. And so we're looking at some projects and properties right now where we can take some of our money out of our stock portfolio and put it into, you know, physical buildings, et cetera, um, in order to get some of these programs and projects off the ground. So I'm curious, Boo, um, thinking about what, what Julie was just um, referencing, is there um, specific types of advice you might give nonprofits so that they can, um, in some cases, it may be that they have to pivot, a very uh, overused word, um, or just to make them or to put them in a place where they can um, have a more, uh, I don't want to say, I, I would say an equity-driven relationship with their funder. Are there things, and, and you've, you know, certainly talk about this in, in, in several of your, your posts, that you, you would suggest a nonprofit do um, to really be able to push forward equity and how to work with that particular organization. Because as you know, in, in some cases, it, it, it is not about one size fits all. And so how are we going to provide organizations the resources and the access they need? Uh, I, yeah, that I'd like I, yeah. you to answer in about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I think right now we, you know, like the pandemic seems to be waning, or at least people think that it is. And so a lot of people are like, oh, let's get back to the same sort of normal that we used to. And like, they were terrible. And I think a lot of the normals that we were used to were just very limiting and restrictive to nonprofits. Like, I think we lost our imagination. We've lost our ability to dream and think bigger and, you know, more catalytically. It's always been in this survival mode. So I would really like nonprofits to just stop in spending time in this sort of survival martyrdom sort of complex, you know, this sort of like scarcity mindset where it's just like, oh, we can only increase our our budget 10% this year or whatever. Like I want us all, I want all the nonprofits listening to be like, whoa, we there's serious things happening right now. And we cannot afford to do the same thing um, that we had, that we were used to, to doing. So for example, with like the, the voter suppression uh, issues, a lot of nonprofits are not working on that because they're like, well, that's mission creep, you know? And we don't, we don't, we don't, that's not in our, in our wheelhouse. We don't work on voter, on protecting voting rights. Well, I think that every single nonprofit should be working on voting rights, like every single one, no matter what their mission is, because that is vital to every single person in the, in the community. And if we have that sort of mindset, then I think the nonprofits can go to funders and say, look, all right, we've been putting up with this bullshit for long enough. All right. You need to give out more money because democracy is being attacked. Our communities are being attacked and we don't have time to play your games and your hoops and your snowflake grant applications and bullshit like that anymore. What What's the reaction you're getting, you know, as you go around the country and, and you know, you keynote a lot of places and you talk to a lot of folks and you hear from a lot of folks through Nonprofit AF, are folks taking those um, 
challenges to heart? Are they pushing forward with their funders? What, what are you hearing in terms of how people are moving forward? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are very tired. They're like, we're exhausted. We don't have, we just don't have the energy. We've been fighting for so long. So I've been trying to pay more attention and, and focus more energy on getting funders to change because, you know, you know, funders have all the power right now. We have to acknowledge that. And it's been very, very challenging. And it seems like the only thing that could actually move a lot of foundations are like public shaming, right? Actually calling out. So I started the hashtag crappy funding practices where I will call out foundations who do crappy things. Um, and also we need to start thinking about legislation. Uh, these are like two things that John Masioka from Cal Nonprofit said that really resonate with me, which is like, that's the only ways to move foundation and meaningful capacity is public shaming and legislation. And legislation will be opposed by every foundation, like the ACE Charitable Act, which is so mild in its, its uh, proposed reforms, you know, and it's still being opposed everywhere by foundations. It's very frustrating. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, just for folks who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, the ACE Charitable Act is a, a bill that's trying to make uh, way in Congress now, where it's uh, is to put some restrictions on donor advice funds and and, so, and some ways that foundations are operating. So, for example, foundations have to give out five percent of their you know um, of their endowments every year, but they can put that money into a donor advice fund and still count towards the five percent. But donor advice funds don't have any law that says you have to give out that money, so you can just put money into a donor advice fund, take a tax deductible, and then never give out any money at all. It could stay there for like 500 years. There's no law that says you have to actually give it out to a nonprofit. Um, there's also law that, you know, that's being proposed in this act that says you can't really count the salary of you know, your family members towards this 5% distribution rate. Um, for donor advice fund, it's like if you're taking a tax deduction, you need to give out this money within 15 years. If you're going to so it's like these are very mild, mild legislation, and it's still like causing issues okay. here. It is. It's causing issues. And the, the thing that I'm understanding, the reason it's causing issues is some of those are for large, the size of the foundation is not considered and the type of foundation is not considered with that piece of legislation. So while our, I won't put names, but our large money makers <laughs> versus our small you know, $5,000, million endowments are, are treated um, the same. And I would love for us to one day have a conversation about why these organizations should not be treated the same and how they actually operate differently um, is for our whole community. So. Well, and toward that, I think there is a big asterisk in that legislation that exempts community foundations. It does. We got that in there the last minute. <laughs> um, so... Vu, I believe I, when I led the Evanston Community Foundation, I was on the end of a good hashtag that you created. What was the opposite hashtag for happy funding practices? Awesome funding practices. Yeah. Yes. I, I won that gold star <laughs> while I was there. Um, and so leaning towards some of the good things, what were the good things that you highlighted with that hashtag? I love that funders are, are becoming more, you know, more trust-based. Right. Uh, some funders, I think, as um, we mentioned earlier, like some funders are just like, you don't need to do a, a written report. We'll just take you out to lunch or we'll just call you and you just tell us what happened. Or you can submit a report that you wrote for another funder. That's fine. A lot of funders are now just accepting grant applications that's being written for someone else and just like, here you go. It's just, you know, we'll just take this, which I think is wonderful. A lot of funders are now doing um, like releasing more funds 
which I, I really appreciate. And some funders are being very thoughtful about who they are funding. The Washington, Women Found, Washington Women's Foundation over here in, in uh, Washington State, for example, just created like this Black Women Healing and Repair grant where it's $100,000 for, for like 10 leaders, $100,000 each for 10 leaders for 10 Black women leaders. And they can do whatever they want with it. They can use it to pay their mortgage. They can use it to pay off their student loans or go on a trip to Greece or wherever. Like we have to start investing in individual leaders and not treat them like batteries to power programs and organizations. I have a couple of questions for you, Julie, but wondering how, if at all, there was anything that you needed to do in the foundation as a result uh, in your community. Um, and, and you have the um, demographics, which you shared with us before we started recording. Um that anything that you saw impacted by the racial reckoning that was happening around the country, did that impact your community? It did not. Okay. Um, we have a couple of, you know, what's happening in town type of Facebook groups. And we did have some very peaceful rallies. Uh, law enforcement were involved, not from a babysitting point of view, but from a, a joined hands point of view. Um, making sure that everyone agrees that no one in our county is going to be bullied or beaten or um, ostracized just for being different. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen because I know it does, but we had a real good outpouring and, um, you know, to date, we haven't had anything like that, but it wasn't a lot of what was happening here was just simply observing what was happening in Chicago mm -hmm. and, and really hoping and taking steps of prevention to make sure that um, looting, et cetera, didn't happen out here. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as um, social reckoning mm -hmm. and things like that, um, there wasn't a whole lot of activity. And if there was, it was mainly led by people who are white. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but. Well, um, they're being co-conspirators or allies. So. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> like I've always said to my scouts and my band kids, you know, just don't touch each other. Just be kind. You know, just you if you can't hug somebody, then don't be kicking them in the butt and, you know, flicking their ear and all that. Just don't touch each other. It's the golden <laughs> rule, clearly. <laughs> it's the golden rule. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. So, um, and so whenever I have a chance, I'll ask the high school counselors, you know, do you have an LGBT club at the school and do you need any financial assistance toward it? Um, we've recently con reconvened, uh, revived, uh, old Latino coalition that we had and it went away and hopefully bringing that back. So, um, so, and now we're focusing on just violence prevention in the big picture, whether it's uh, guns, whether it's automobiles crashing through a parade or whatever the case may be. That is a great uh, point to bring up. We wanna continue that conversation, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Gathering Ground, and we're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. 
We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. listening to Gathering Ground. And today we have a lovely co-host, Monique Jones. Say hello, Monique. Hello. Great to be here. (laughs) So we have been talking with Boule and Julie Buck. And Julie, I want to just ask you, because we we took the break just as you were bringing up gun violence. Mm -hmm. What's happening in your community around that? And for both of you, what can we do around these very seemingly intractable issues that we're, we're, you know, confronting, whether it's around climate justice, whether it's around reproductive justice, mm-hmm. whether it's around uh, violence uh, prevention. What's happening in your area around these topics, Julie? The administrator of our county health department is, has been on the job, well, she probably started just before the pandemic, poor thing, but, you know, she has a really good uh, head on her shoulders, big picture, and she was convening a small group of us of about 10. And after a couple of those meetings, it has whittled down to her and law enforcement. So I'm not privy to everything, mm-hmm. but a lot of that conversation has been around HIPAA in that law enforcement has said, if we pull somebody over on a Saturday night and we kind of already know who they are and that they're in treatment or that they've had an addiction or blah, blah, blah. We would rather hook them up with their AA sponsor or something like that, rather than treat them like a criminal. Um, Cause if I don't know anything about them, they're a total stranger. So I don't know how far that has gone, but we've been in those types of conversations. Um, yeah. Here in rural Grundy County, it is absolutely gun owner registration rights. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't punish the uh, law-abiding citizens who own guns. And so how can we... Out here, it really has more of a mental health um, approach. So we're kind of working on that, but it's newish. I don't really have a full-fledged answer for you. Um, I myself... I'm part of a group called a community organization, the Active in Disaster Co-Ed, and they're all over the country because, you know, we have had five disasters in nine years out here in Grundy County. And so we have been in conversations with law enforcement. What could the nonprofits do should we have a mass situation, whether it's a vehicle in a parade or an active shooter at the movie theater, whatever the case may be, what role can we have to support the first responders? But that's a whole different podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's the active response to yeah. that. 
Mm-hmm. Boo, what are you thinking about with, with regard to these um, challenges we're facing across the country, across the world in some cases? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to be in Washington state, which is a little bit more progressive in many of these issues. Like we just passed a few mm-hmm. new gun regulation laws, including banning um, semi-automatic weapons. So, which is great, you know, but I think as a sector, we need to start just being a lot more assertive and a lot more organized and mm-hmm. funders, especially progressive leaning funders have just been so white moderate, you know, and I bring this up because I, I think this is something that has been haunting me a bit, like what Dr. King was saying about how the biggest threat to justice are not like the people burning crosses and so on, right? It's the sort of very nice people. Kind of like, oh, you know, can we all just get along and be civil with one another? Those are the biggest threats. And philanthropy, progressively in philanthropy, has become one giant white moderate structure that is more focused on like civility and getting along uh, with people who are so hell-bent on destroying human rights and advancing inequity. And we're like, just like, we're more worried about hurting their feelings than actually enacting these laws here. So, like, I would like the progressive leading foundations to be like, you know what? We are all in support of, of reproductive rights. We're all in on ensuring that there's sensible gun laws. You know, we're all in on protecting trans people. Like, this is what we need foundations to do. But instead, what we have are, like, progressive leading foundations saying stuff like, oh, you can't use our money to advocate. You can't use it to lobby. You can't, you know, like, it's just so frustrating. So many of us on the ground are ready to take action and to mobilize, and we are stopped every every which way by the very same allies who are supposed to be funding this work and who claim that they want a more equitable world. And yet everything that they do has just like prevents us from actually enacting um, like goals and, and tactics. Now, I run an arm here that has a policy, a public policy team, um, and we sit in between our funders and our nonprofit organizations to think about policy that works for them. I often hear, similar to what you're saying, Vu, our nonprofit organizations, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the staffing um, or the understanding or the wherewithal to work on policy issues. But I know, you know, we all know that you have to attack an issue from ground up as well as public policy um, ground down. And that is a limited amount of time in a legislative year. <laughs> in, in Illinois right now, we're, we're rolling out the end of our, our legislative session. And so the idea that we want to make sure our nonprofit organizations, our leaders do have the capacity to do that. Do what you just suggesting, we make sure we're funding that, our foundations are funding that specific particular work Julie, do you all do any advocacy policy work? We do. Okay. Yeah, we do, but not not to any really no scale that I could really pat ourselves on the back about. But what I do, either with the nonprofits in my county or I teach a certificate in nonprofit administration at Joliet Junior College, I teach all my students, all the nonprofits, I just want to hear three tidbits of data from you, whether it's hey, the, the percentage of free and reduced lunch at our school has skyrocketed, or the um, 
number of unplanned pregnancies or the pounds of food that were given out. I just want you to tell me three things because it's probably the same three data points you've been telling for 20 years. Um, but I, donors can't process more than that. And I just, I just think everybody, if I would like to see everybody just have three maybe shocking factoids about the clientele that they serve just to better illustrate what they and we are struggling with. Something you mentioned earlier, Julie, was about um, burnout. Uh, right. That That's a real thing. We've experienced the great resignation. We've experienced, um, as a matter of fact, my team at Forefront, the majority of us are under two years tenured. Um, and I appreciate the fact that people can go and find the jobs that fit their lifestyle. But in a space when we are now dealing with more trauma, um, more insults on our civil and human rights. It is infuriating that it takes so much to retain employees and give them the things they need to lead their lives. What are some promising practices that we can ensure our employees in the nonprofit sector can work with us and, and be rewarded for their work and not feel like every day that they go home, it's just traumatic and beat down? I think that's a really good point because the reality is we spend most of our time at work. We do, and uh, so we so th- we have we should be happy, right? We should be happy where we're going to spend hours upon hours, days upon days, and have two days off. I don't understand uh, that 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 formula. Um, and so, and certainly we've seen it, Morton Group. To your point, the Great Resignation is that there are lots of opportunities out there. And folks are much more in tune because they've had some time to think about it, um, in some cases because of, of COVID, right? What really is going to make them happy? Um, yeah, how do we make organizations attractive, mm-hmm. right? And keep people engaged and 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 supported um, because that that is what it comes down to. I mean, people, and, and also people really do want to know, and certainly folks who are under the age of 40 want to know that you are doing something with regard to equity in your organization. It could be DEI, it could be racial equity, but what we're seeing and what the data suggests is that that in some cases matters more than money. If people do not think that they're going to come into an organization, particularly if they're underrepresented, sure. come into an organization and feel included and and, and is as if they belong, um, they're not going to stay. So how does that look from your vantage point, Vu? I agree. I think that for some people, those things are absolutely critical. I mean, I would, I think for me, it's really vital to go into an organization. Like, are you focused on equity? Are you living your values? Are you just putting them on a, on a website, right? And at the same time, we do have to acknowledge that, like, we suck at paying people in this sector and we suck at compensating them with, like, family, pay family leave and retirement. Like, many people have no idea what they're going to do for retirement, which is going to work till we die, apparently, is, is a lot of the plans for a lot of folks here. Um, and, yeah, like, shitty pay is going to affect whether people will stay at your organization or not. That's, like, the basic essential, Right. Because if that's not going to be there, it doesn't matter how amazing your organization is with everything else. Like people need money to live. And again, like this goes to the funders out there who are just like, who don't really understand this. And I think specifically progressive leaning funders, because this is not the case with conservative funders who tend to treat their folks as like 
you know, their flag bearers are as essential to their movements. I was talking to Angie Kim of um, Center for Cultural Innovation, and she she was talking about how, you know, like, for conservatives, like, if you are, if you are a conservative pundit or a leader, and you are disgraced for somehow you got fired for embezzlement or whatever, you know, the conservative movement will rally around you. Conservative funders and movement will rally around you. You will get a book deal, a spot on Dancing with the Star. You will get, you know, a, a spot on Fox News or whatever. You know, like, and that's not the case for progressive leaders. It's like if we somehow said something extremely progressive and challenging and start getting death threats from people, I actually have seen this happen to an organization who said something that challenged one of the political, like conservative right-wing pundits. And then he mobilized people to attack them and they started getting death threats. And and when they reach out to their funders, they'll be like, hey, can you support us with maybe some legal defense funds or whatever? The funders like, oh no, sorry, that's no, no, that's that's outside of our scope. You're on your own. Like this is how we treat. And then we wonder why people are burning out. You know, like we have to start protecting our progressive leaders by paying them well, ensuring that they actually have a future to work for, and ensuring that they're protected when they go out and start pushing for systems change. That's a big one. Um, you brought to my mind how the recent polling for our presidential candidates has a group of people who believe that a certain president could probably be, should probably be indicted, but would still vote for him. And then another group of people who who are like, the other one is, is too old and we don't want him. I'm just like, they're <laughs> kind of the same age. I'm, I'm trying to understand how we're supporting, and how we're putting that support behind each other. Um, I think there's ample opportunity though. I am an optimistic person. So as am I. <laughs> And I always try to get my lemonade out of the lemons. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I can only you know look at my organization as an example of what I try to do here. But I'm eager to hear as you're processing, Julie, I'm going to turn to you. As you're processing some of these issues, I know you don't have the staff size that you would probably want. But when you're thinking about how you engage and support, what are you able to offer the folks who work for you and with you when you consult and when you do those things? I'm really, I've really become a fan of lived experience. Um, and for full disclosure, I, my father was a very well compensated carpenter. I am the baby of the family. I am spoiled beyond, beyond belief. So I have all sorts of white privilege uh, in my life. Um, and I'm a boomer. I don't know if that matters. I had a, one of our high school girls just crack up when I admitted that I'm a boot. She's like, you would admit that? And I'm like, well, yeah, I, you can't really fudge your age, you know, Monique. But <laughs> I serve on our county drug court. And so many of them wrap up saying, I want to go to school because I want to be an abuse counselor. Because lived experience, I know what it's like to overdose. I know what it's like to struggle, etc. So I've really gotten into that. I'm Hoping that that cuts down on client relations. If I've never used a food pantry, it's kind of hard for me to counsel somebody who has or does, etc. And maybe by having staffers with lived experience, maybe they could better direct our clients in need on how to get through the patch that they're in. I guess we're all 
an agreement moving residents along the path of self-sufficiency? I don't know. I, I'm assuming we all believe in that, but maybe there are people out there who don't. Thanks for that. That really speaks to some of the trends that I actually have seen as um, in our hiring practices and our recruitment practices, wanting to make sure your staff is reflective of the community that you're serving, but also looking at all the requirements we put in place before someone can even get to an interview process, person who does the executive searching here. Um, <laughs> those promising trends for hiring people for their lived experience, their context and their content. And that, that is happening a lot more. So I can remember sending, I don't know, this is probably well over a year ago, sending Boo, you know, a job announcement. He's like, oh, I see you have the salary here. That's really good, Mary. <laughs> and I think it was actually longer than a year ago, but that is something that we must do, right? And when we don't, we should be getting pushback on it, right? If you're talking about being an equity-focused, equity-driven organization, people should not have to try to figure out if they should apply, will it meet their you know, salary requirements? Do they have to go and check the 990, which is something that used to be said. Well, you know, if they don't know to check the 990, is mm -hmm. this someone that we really want in this role? <laughs> I've been in those meetings. And so, um, yes, let's just talk about uh, things that matter to people at the very beginning. Certainly when we're doing an executive search, we, we are not trying to play sort of, aha, we gotcha. That, that, that doesn't help anyone and actually can waste a lot of time um, so, again, with regard to how nonprofits are, are um, organized uh, in terms of the support and the development that staff receive, um, there's so many times when we are, are concerned if we're hiring a staff person and it's the first time it's been a staff person of color in the organization, we want to make sure that they're going to be supported and that they're not, you know, frankly, being set up in some way, which often happens. Um, first of all, boards often may think if they, you know, had an extended search or things have been a little up and down, they may think, oh, we got the new person. Good. We're, we're good to go. We can just keep moving when they, you know, don't really take into uh, account that the transition is still going on and it's going on for at least another year because the new person has to go through everything, right, to have that those experiences. And so uh, what I'm finding is that boards check out too quickly um, and are not realistic necessarily about what the um, nonprofit needs or the, the certainly the, the new staff leader needs to be successful. And so that, of course, is what we focus on. But we're also looking, even when we're doing an executive search, you know, what are some of the other relationships? How do people interact with each other? We're noticing all those things because we often end up working with a variety of people, not just the board. We have to work with staff to get materials and documents yes. and things of that sort. So you know, how people respond to us, how we meet with the staff at the beginning of any search process to get their feedback, to make sure we are understanding what is important to them. Um, all those pieces are critically important. And um, what we hear from uh, certainly not only CEOs, but uh, COOs and deputy directors is that they're not having enough autonomy in some cases to get what they know you know, needs to be done. And I, I guess it would be great to hear if there's any, certainly from you, Vu, in terms of your interaction and experience with nonprofits, what are the suggestions on making sure that what people actually need is being addressed in a nonprofit? And, and, and again, we're focusing on the staff here. How do we take care of the staff? Yeah, well, I would say things are, are definitely changing. I think the future of work is something we need to, to discuss, right? I mean, besides paying people adequately, Mary, you mentioned like, you know, like the, 
doesn't make sense to have five day work week anymore. Um, people are starting to look at four day work weeks. Uh, they're looking at vacation time. They're looking at sabbaticals. I think those are all really necessary retirement and and so on. But also even like leadership structures are going to be reexamined, right? We're gonna have more shared. There, there's been a, an increase in co directors, co directors, and even three folks at Compass Point. Yeah, Compass Point or uh, my last organization. Now there's four co-executive directors. They each take on 50% of the ED's job. Uh, so together it's 200%, right? Which is basically what ED does. I don't know more about that. That's another podcast. Okay. <laughs> and it's been working out really well because they build like a strong culture of feedback, giving and solicitation and trust. And it's been really transformative to have this sort of flatter structure uh, at my organization. So I think we're starting to see more and more of these things. And the folks who are so used to this hierarchical model, like, I think we got to be okay really re-examining, like, is that working? Or, and are we able to sort of get with the program? Or maybe we should consider stepping down. If like, yeah. the, like you know, I feel like a lot of younger professionals are like, this is what, this is, this is what we, we need moving forward to be happy here. And to like, to fight capitalism and this product toxic productivity culture and so on. And one of the biggest barriers is they will face board members and EDs and CEOs who have been so used to growing up with this sort of hierarchical model. And so, and I think, I think many of us have internalized this because that's what, we, that's how we grew up. Right. So I think we have to assess like, can we actually change and evolve or do we need to like step aside so that the people who can, take the rain. Absolutely. And one more thing before we, we hear back from you, Julie, this is really, I think, also why we're seeing uh, the proliferation of unions, right, in nonprofits. And we are working with a number of groups who just in the last several years have unionized. Are you seeing more about that as well, Vu? I'm definitely seeing more conversations about unions and more unions forming. Mm -hmm. um, we do have to be thoughtful about it. Absolutely. Because it seems like we've learned some, maybe some, some tactics that are not very effective in this context, right? Because I think for a lot of unions, like it's adversarial against like the company, but in nonprofit, maybe that's not necessarily going to be effective because you're like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. For wages and so on. But like, we all have to fundraise for this. So. Right. Exactly. Good point. One size does not fit all. That's right. That's right. As far as workers goes, I may be ignorant of the process, but I'm curious how we collectively are dealing with measuring workers' production, for lack of a better term, um, who work at home in the health and human services. Mm -hmm. So a girlfriend of mine for probably 30 years has worked from home being a reservation call center customer service person for one of the major hotel chains for like 30 years it's easy to measure her output type of thing but when you're interacting with clients who have addiction or who need to access the food pantry or need assistance with car repair or home energy assistance um, or our adults with developmental disabilities through the workforce services and stuff like that I, as an individual, don't know how to measure that. And Vu's answer is probably going to be then don't measure it. But, you know, we're also dealing with boards and 
elected officials and funders, etc. So um, I toss that out to the big picture. And then to back up a tiny bit, I always cringe when I hear social service agencies with this big giant intake form. I don't know why that has to be this big three-page intake form at the first meeting. I know why. So to bring this full circle, a lot of the things that um, organizations, nonprofit organizations do is because they are required by a funder. Mm -hmm. So me as a social worker, thinking about what I need, the information I need, I ask those questions. And as, as many therapists do, they just retain that information in their head. They might type up a note so that they can help a client in the future. But sometimes we have to put on paper in aggregate how your entire caseload is doing so that you can get additional funding. That's where those layers of questions come from. But to the point of how we can measure the product, the product that our workers are putting out, we're thinking about it too narrow. It's my thought that instead of just thinking about how we're working the work, how we are measuring the work product, we're either measuring our entire staff. I want to make sure that my team is doing what they need to do to take care of themselves so that they can continue to put that output. So I'm adding an extra layer of measurement in there. And the best practice is that people first in all things. The clients that we're serving, the staff that work with me, the people in the community, asking those type of questions so that I know that I'm asking the right questions. And then when I have a sit down, as Vu said before, when I'm working with a funder who is working in a trust-based philanthropic sort of way, we're having a real conversation, not just about the output that is happening in my organization, but how are my team able to do that successfully or not? And have that trust-like conversation so that I can say, you know, we're struggling. <laughs> we're really struggling and this is what I need help with. Or we're hitting it out the park. And in order to help us continue to hit it out the park, increase that grant by about ten to $15,000. So I got dinged in a Facebook conversation a couple of weeks ago because I said, hey, I am the type of person, in my early days, I was writing notes, right? You have a notepad by the side of the bed because you think of something if you don't write it down it's not gonna today we text and we email and so i said you know there have been times at midnight i'm emailing somebody because it's on my mind and somebody went well how dare you because now you're expecting that person to read it at midnight and i said no 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 i'm not i'm getting it out of my head and that person went well how privileged are you that you have the right to get your thoughts out of your head so that you don't have to worry about it and i was like whoa okay I think this is probably for a longer podcast that we need to have, but it just seems like a lot of folks are just weaponizing like terminologies and concepts that are supposed to be advancing equity and our ability to work with one another, right? And getting like, and I think it's because everyone has been so stressed out by everything that we find the nearest proximity to power and privilege and we start attacking people in the same boat and it's ridiculous. I think a simple thing is like, oh, if you're if you're responding at midnight, you know, would you mind just putting in your signature like, hey, please feel free to respond later on, you know, like that's a simple solution for that problem right there. I see, I've been seeing more of that. People are just like, hey, I'm responding. I, please don't let when I send my email dictate when you have to respond. We're just trying to be thoughtful about everyone's boundaries and work-life balance. A simple statement like that will solve the immediate issue. So attacking you for this, that's just bullshit. I like, I just, we have more important things to focus our energy on. Mm -hmm. 
And let me just say this. Another thing you can do that is completely driven by your com- laptop or computer is Delayed you can send response. it. Right. You can send, <laughs> you can schedule to send it so that it doesn't wind up in anyone's box until 8 a.m. Uh, yeah, 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. And I know I used to do that because I work on Sundays to get ready for the week. And early on, my team would say, well, we got this email from you. Should we be responding now? And I said, no, no, no. If I'm only if I'm texting you on a Sunday night, is there a real problem? Um, but or calling you, God forbid, someone call. Um, so yeah, it's really easy easy to address that. And to Vu's point, that's like taking things to a whole different level. And we do have literally bigger fish to fry than that. I just I just think like this whole the like the like we were forgetting some basic equity concept, right? Equity is about like what is working most effectively for you Absolutely. and not imposing that on, on necessarily everyone else. Like for me as a parent of small children, like sometimes I can only do work at midnight, right? After the kids are asleep and, and so on. And I actually have some energy, right? Do I need to now like, yeah, I want to be thoughtful and considerate. So I'll, I'll, I'll ensure to tell my team, like you don't have to respond, but if you see an email at 3 a.m., it doesn't mean that you have to respond at 4 a.m. or whatever. Like no one is that ridiculous. So, like, let's focus on what matters now. So, before the pandemic, we convened 40 Under 40 and just picked their brain. And it was overwhelmingly, do not invite me to something before school or after school. If you want to bring me together, if you want to bring us together at noon, feed us a quick peanut butter and jelly sandwich and use us for an hour and let us get back to work, that's fine. But my children come first. And... That's it. So they they don't want to be in the Rotary Club. They don't want to be in the Lions Club. They don't want to do any of that unless it involves their children. So and that involves that obviously includes the board of directors of some nonprofits. So and I'm also going to say our county board. We had a during the restructure, one of the county board members said, um, "Well, I'm still working full time. So can we bump the hour?" that we meet till like six o'clock or whatever. And one of them said, well, I'm retired. We, I want to meet at 4 p.m. And I'm like, well. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to meet somewhere in the middle. And and, and again, this this can't be the the conversation, the topic, right, of, of a long, long conversation. It it pales in comparison to all the things you're really trying to do, right, in the, in the foundation. Believe it or not, we are coming to the end of our time together. And as we've already said, there are many topics we've brought up that we could have an entire podcast on, but we want to end with what is the good news mm-hmm. for the social impact sector? What should people be really excited about? Um, we are coming up on the mid-year um, point in 2023, which is shocking to me <laughs> that we're already talking about, uh, you know, sort of the June 30th deadline is, is looming over us. Uh, so for many nonprofits, they'll, they're coming up on the end of their fiscal year. For some of them, it's the midpoint. Um, what What's the good news? What should people be looking forward to in the social impact sector? And I'm going to start with you, Vu. Yeah, I think there's some good things happening, uh, like the community-centric fundraising movement, which I've been involved in and advancing, has been making a lot of ground, and a lot of people are thinking about fundraising differently. I'm seeing more organizations being thoughtful about which grants that they take, and some of them are declining funding. They're being thoughtful about introducing their existing donors to other nonprofits and sharing, highlighting the work of partner organizations. I'm seeing funders funding more thoughtfully and uh, increasing the amount of giving that they're 
that they're, they're, the amount that they're giving out every year. Or some of them are thinking about sunsetting and giving out all their money now to address the climate change and other things. Um, so there's been, and then, you know, really cool stuff. People are starting to explore things such as four-day work weeks. They're starting to, to I don't know, think about just cool things that are that are happening in, 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 in the work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people are just being thoughtful about equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, supporting trans colleagues. So there's lots of good things that are happening. And we still have a long way to go. But, like, I, I think that there is definitely some bright spots out there. Wonderful. Julie, what would you add to that? As a rural American, I'm going to say social media. Mm-hmm. And for as negative as it can be, for those of us out in rural America, using social media to get our message out we're reaching alumni on the other side of the, the nation. And these private Facebook groups or LinkedIn groups that some of us are in are giving us the, the strength and the courage and the ammunition that Vu just talked about. You know, somebody can come on and say, whoa, we just got approached for the very first time about LGBTQ. I don't know what to do. And, and the gang chimes in. Try this, try that. Or, hey, I have a board member who made a super racist comment the other day. What can I do? Hey, try this, try that, etc. Um, somebody will post, hey, our company's hiring. And they provide a link and somebody comes in and goes, hey, you left out the salary, jerk. Wow. You know, and so we're learning all this stuff. Vu gets quoted all the time. You know, <laughs> so we kind of learned that if somebody throws in a Vu quote, the rest of us just shut up because, you know, you can't mic drop after that. So, but (laughs) for rural America, I would say social media is Mm. sometimes our enemy, but really more helpful than not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about for you? All of those things. Mm -hmm. So as a philanthropy serving organization, I get the opportunity to engage with everyone. And so my biggest win this year is Forefront moving away from a sit down like food gala like a dinner or luncheon and doing more community-centric fundraising and bringing in voices so we're offering opportunities for who people used to formally sponsor as a dinner to really sign their name onto a thought leadership process so i'm excited for the sector because i think we are getting to be riskier Mm -hmm. and we're we're not standing up for something that's odd we're just speaking it into power so Stay tuned to Forefront because we are we're going to shake some things up. I love that. Can't wait to hear about this um, sort of new event, new program. Yes. Yes. We're going to have to talk about that on another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to take a moment and just thank uh, Vu and thank Julie for joining us. Uh, Vu, the founder and publisher of Nonprofit AF and Julie Buck, the president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Grundy County. And I want to thank my first ever co-host. Monique Jones for being so spectacular. And I'm sure you're gonna be invited back. I have I have I have some insight into this. I think you're gonna be invited back. I have a little time on my calendar. Okay, well we'll see if we can work that in. <laughs> so I want to thank all of you for joining us today. This has been another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. And I'm Monique Jones. Until next time. Mm-hmm.